0: Hello and welcome to Revolution 22's podcast. We are a church from the downtown area of Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today as we listen to God's word from the book of Genesis and the life of Joseph. We pray that the Lord will draw us to him as we find ourselves in the story of God amidst suffering. of the things that I get to do as a pastor is I get to interact with a number of different families that I normally wouldn't probably get as many as I do. And as a pastor, I get to walk with people through all kinds of celebrations of family, through, through new marriages, or, or having children, or graduations, all these really beautiful aspects of life and family dynamics. But I also um, get to walk alongside of some really messed up family dynamics, difficulties, divorces, uh, loss of life, uh, just heartbreaking things. And as I've spent many years now walking with different families, whether they were highly functional or or highly dysfunctional, I don't think I've ever seen or or, or walked with a family as dysfunctional as Joseph's. Now, I want to say this really clearly. I don't have a chart at home where when you make a mistake, I lower you down on the level of dysfunction. That's not happening I just know that this, when I, when I come to the life of Joseph and I see the dysfunction that ensues this entire family, it's, it's baffling to see. It's amazing, in fact, in this story to see that anything good could come out of it when you see the family dynamic. We've been studying uh, through the book of Genesis. We have given you a really large overview, kind of broad brush strokes across the last few weeks. So I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. And we're going to spend the rest of our time here and starting today in Genesis chapter 37 and all the way through to Genesis 50. We'll be in here for a good amount of time, but our whole purpose and joy and hope and desire for all of you was that we would realize that God is um, writing his story and that we will flourish if, if, we, if we remember that it's his story, regardless of our circumstances, by finding ourselves in the story of God. So we're hoping for us to flourish in this. We're hoping that that's what will come through this, regardless of our circumstances, uh, today, as we get into Joseph, you just saw the scripture. We're going to jump into it, but before we do, I have to kind of have to kind of lay out the actual family of Joseph so we can understand it because it's drastically different than most of our family structures uh, today. See, Jacob is his father, and Jacob is uh, brothers with Esau, twin kind of comes out at the same time. There's a, a Jacob's name literally means deceiver, so I'm sorry for all you present day Jacobs like your your name means deceit. So I don't know why your parents. Would de- I'm just kidding. Sorry. Um, but he's he's promised at birth to be greater than his brother. His, this whole promise comes, and his obviously his mother knows this, and, and they hear this, and so he he comes out of the womb knowing most likely because Rebecca told him over and over again, like you will be greater than Esau. And we we have this scene where there's this scene where uh, Joseph or not Joseph, sorry, Esau is starving. He's he's so hungry, and and Jacob is making some red stew, some yummy stew in place, and and. And Esau comes in and he's highly dramatic, like my teenage girls, you know, like I'm starving, I'll die, right? Like he does that thing. And he's like, give me some of your stew. And and Jacob, being the, the wonderful deceiver, the kind of the, the the schemer that he is, is like, Yes, I'll give you some soup. I'll give you some of this if you give me your birthright. And and Esau is like, What good is a birthright if I starve to death? So he takes his gives him his birthright in this moment. And so so here we see Jacob kind of trying to figure out a way. To, to bring to truth that which has already been declared over him, that he will be greater than his brother. We see him scheming for this. And, and Jacob um, gets, you know, he gets married. Uh, he steals the birthright, so he gets, he, he gets married to uh, Leah. And Rachel, we'll talk about that in just a second. When when Jacob's older, his dad Isaac is dying, and and Rebecca and Jacob come up with this plan on how to trick their... <laughs> dying blind father or husband into giving the blessing that's due Esau, the firstborn, to Jacob. So he schemes away, puts some goat's fur on his hand, apparently that would work, and and he puts it over his arm and and tricks his dad into believing that he's Esau. And so his dad, Isaac, gives the blessing again to Jacob. So Jacob, here we see Jacob scheming again with the help of his mother to, to do the very thing that was already said would happen. So he's fighting for it again. And he cheats his blind old dad with goat skin. So Jacob is is a, is a troubling individual when you look at it in the scripture. Um, he had multiple wives. Uh, real quickly, I want to talk about that because I want to be clear in this. God is not condoning this. He is working within the framework of the culture that is at hand. Um, yes, scripture records acts of polygamy and concubinage among Old Testament saints. Yes, it is. But just because it records, it does not mean it's prescriptive. It's just descriptive. In fact, the whole narrative of scripture talks about monogamous one-man, one-woman marriage. Let me just read what one scholar said. It's perfect. He says, the marriage pattern established at creation, one man and one woman in a monogamous commitment commitment is both commanded and commended throughout the rest of scripture. The seventh commandment forbids adultery, that is sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage, Exodus 20, verse 14. Deuteronomy forbids Israel's future king, the ideal Israelite, and the new Adam from multiplying wives, Deuteronomy 17, 17. The New Testament follows the same pattern. Jesus affirms the goodness of God's design for monogamy in Mark 10. Similarly, the church's elders, whose lives whose should serve as examples of faithfulness for all Christians, 1 Peter 5.3, must be one woman man, 1 Timothy 3.2. And then this is the big part. In Ephesians 5, Paul shows the logic behind God's design for marriage. God didn't institute complementarity and monogamy into the created order arbitrarily. Instead, these features reflect heavenly realities, namely Christ's relationship with his people. As Christ has only one bride, so marriage on earth testifies to that truth. So this is an observation of a system in which the culture was functioning, not commanded, we must take and look at it critically. So yes, he has multiple wives, but the funny thing, not funny, kind of the sad thing is the way that Jacob ends with multiple wives is he's deceived by his uncle Laban. So he works seven years to to marry Rachel because he's into her. Now I'm thinking about implementing that for my daughters, like seven years of servitude before you can have my daughter's hand in marriage. That is awesome. So he does this seven years and then Laban tricks him and gives him Leah, the older daughter. And and, and Jacob's like, this isn't who I love. I wanted Rachel. Well then serve me another seven years. So, he, so Laban, Uncle Laban gets 14 years of servitude out of, out of Uh, Jacob for his wife. So here we see that Jacob is being deceived as a deceiver, like deception kind of just falls in everywhere. Um, And and what I wanted to do real quickly, because this family dynamic, again, this is a part of a patriarch we've talked about a few weeks ago. I would encourage you to go back and listen. I'm not going to go there again. I wanted to give you guys a visual of the family that Joseph works into. So I asked Daniel Rush to come up with a slide, and he overdid it. So here's, here's the family. Makes sense, right? Everything's good to go here. So this is how the family dynamic works. you got Jacob and his wife's kids and birth order. So Leah, now we see that when Jacob marries Leah, we see that he hates Leah. As, as sad as that is, and I will talk about that in a second, but he only loves Rachel. And so it says that God saw that Leah was hated, so he opened up her womb, and, therefore, and Rachel's was not opened. And so Leah gives birth. She gives birth to Reuben, and then Simeon, and then Levi. And after each one of these children, she says things like, well, she literally names them after what she thinks, now my husband will love me. Now my husband will attach himself to me. And she keeps trying to win his love and his affection through giving birth, having children. Again, Remember, in this system, this is where blessing came through, was church, would be fruitful and multiply. This is like, this is what they, they believed, and this is how they believed, and this is how they operated. Blessing came through children. And so she believed that she would be loved by Jacob, finally, because she kept giving him sons, which was a really powerful and big thing, but it doesn't happen. And then she has Judah, and she finally realizes, finally gives up her hopes of husbandly love and turns to praise the Lord. And that's what Judah's name means, praise the Lord. She finally gives up on trying to win over. And it's really interesting. It's at this point, if you go back and read this in Genesis 29 and 30, it just reads really terribly. I'm just going to be honest with you. I wish the, they would have given us a little bit more information in between. It's like literally like one after the other after another, the And then there's the mandrakes in place. And it's just, a, it's just a mess. I encourage you to read it. But they, so then she stops having children at this moment. And Rachel is upset that she has no heir under her bloodline. So she gives her handmaid to Jacob and says, Give me a child that this will be mine because she was her slave. She was a property. So therefore, whatever child she had would be considered Rachel's child. So then, so then we get to child number five and six, Dan and Naphtali from, from Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid. Well, then Leah, even though she's got four sons, isn't to be outdone by Rachel. She gives her handmaid to Jacob, which then brings Gad and Asher. And then Leah starts having babies again, Issachar, Zebulun, and then finally has the one girl. Could you imagine one sister and all that? like 12 brothers, Dina, number 11 right there. And then it's finally late in her years. Rachel finally gives birth to Joseph. So here's Joseph. He's, he's 12 in the birth order, 11 in the men in, in this thing. He shows up to Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, the one he loves, the one he's about, and he all of a sudden sets into scene that way. So now just picture this for a second. From a family dynamic, if you know as children... That your mother happens to be less liked than the other mothers in the house? Like that is going to create some decent tension. I mean, could you imagine game night? Like there's some serious competition there, right? So so then so then Dina happens, and then we got Joseph, and then Benjamin or is, is is born on the way to the land. So all of this birthing and all of this children, all of this is in transition. They're not in home, they're not in land. So they finally make themselves to land right after Benjamin is born. Uh, Rachel dies in giving birth to Benjamin, and so now it's just Leah, Bilhah, and Zilpa. Zilpa, Zip- yes, thank you. Sorry, Zilpa, and and they're together all with this family dynamic. These thirteen children, twelve boys, one daughter, all moved into Land of Canaan, and here they are. And this is the family that Joseph is a part of. This is how the birth order happens. This is who is the moms in this, in this place. And so you can see in each section how there would be these inner kind of groupings of family that would be like, this is my real full brother or sister. This, this really dysfunctional. Not, like, this is not something we're like, oh, yeah, this really works well. Let's try this again. No, guys, it's terrible how this works. But in this, and the reason why I wanted to make sure that you saw this, the 12 tribes of Israel come out of this this is This is where we see the twelve tribes come from. They come from these sons right here. so this is what you 're seeing now, as a father, Jacob really struggled I mean, he was he was passive he favored he did tons of favoritism he, he just didn 't treat people the same in fact uh, there's a there's a, a a part in Dina's life that's just absolutely horrific Dina is is they're making their way to the land, and they come to the land of Prince Shechem, and, he, Shechem, and he, he sees Dina, and he's like, wow, she's really beautiful, and he rapes her. And in this setting, and this is what just, just baffles my mind, in this thing, Jacob's silent. The dad does nothing to protect his daughter. That is a dysfunctional family. And so what do you see? You see Simeon, and, and Levi, not Reuben. Reuben's another problem. We'll talk about him in there. He's the next in the patriarch. Now, remember, this is, this is the job, the role of the, the, the father in the patriarch was to take care of, not just provide financially, but physical protection for the whole family unit. And Jacob is passive in this. Passive. In fact, you know, Jacob does get angry. What happens is Simeon and Levi uh, decide that they are going to get even, which if you look, they're they're same mom, same dad. So we don't hear anything about Gad or Asher or Joseph or Benjamin or Dan or Nephili or any of the other brothers. Just Simeon and Levi decide to devise a plan because what happens? And this is what's so crazy. Shechem loves Dina and he wants to marry her. So he comes to have a conversation and normally that conversation would have happened with the patriarch. Jacob should have been the one that's talking, but he's not. The, they're talking to Simeon and Levi. Jacob and Reuben are just gone. The order doesn't make sense. And they're saying, hey, we want to marry her. And and, and Simeon and Levi go, well, yeah, you can marry her. That's great. But, ooh, sorry, as people of God, we can't marry anyone unless they are circumcised. So you need to circumcise your whole tribe. And and the, and, and the, 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 the people of Shechem are like, this seems like honorable thing. They're people of God. And so they go and they, they circumcise all men. And when they're in the process of healing, Simeon and Levi go and massacre all of them. This This is... If you're going to talk about a passive, non-present dad, guys, this is the epitome of it. Like He is, he is completely aloof and gone and not paying attention, not paying attention to what's happening, not, not in any way. And when he's mad, he gets mad at the fact that Levi and Simeon might have caused disorder among the, among the land with different tribes. He's not mad that well, what's happened to his daughter was wrong was horrible, was atrocious. He doesn't even, doesn't do that. In fact, he's mad at his sons for doing what they did. Now, granted, they did something evil and evil doesn't make evil right, but they came back and they, they took matters into their own hands. And this is, this is dad. This is Joseph's father. This is the dad that Simeon and Levi and Dina know. In, in this day and age, Dina being, being raped, like this ruins her future. It's not just a one instant. This, like, her future of child and marriage and all that stuff is gone because of this. And Jacob's mad that there might be some turmoil with another tribe. Like, that's where he gets angry? It's not good. It it just gets worse than that. Sometime along the way, Genesis 35 is where we see this. That story that I just told you of Dino is from Genesis 34. Genesis 35, we see that that Reuben, at some point, Reuben, the firstborn, is, is super into to Bilhah, Rachel's mom, or Rachel's maidservant, and he, he sleeps with Bilha, and, and we see in that, in, in Genesis 35, we see that, that it says, and Israel heard. So that's, that's Jacob's name. I'll tell you that in just a second here. So we know, we know that he knows about it. Nothing said. Nothing's done. This was a complete, like, no-no in this time. This was very bad. And Jacob, his firstborn with his handmaid, and he does nothing. In fact, we know that he knows. Some people were like, well, he didn't know. Well, maybe that Israel herd wasn't there. When you get to chapter 49 or the, the blessings and curse area, sorry, 42, and, and um, it's not 42. Sorry, wherever it is, 39, wherever. It's in Genesis when you get there, okay? It's the blessings and the curses. You see that, that, that what he speaks of Reuben is because of his bed being defiled that's the, That's the first account of Jacob doing anything to hold anyone accountable in his family then Jacob in the middle of trying to make things right with his brother Esau uh, he has this evening where he's alone and he starts wrestling with a man who is the angel of the Lord most likely wrestling with God and they're wrestling all night long and they're they're fighting and they're trying to get things and they can't they can't get anywhere they're not going anywhere and finally uh the 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 angel of the Lord uh, touches Jacob's hip and puts it out of socket. Now, I looked into the Hebrew in this word. uh, Most likely, it's actually a strike. Now, I just want you guys to think about this because this is really important. In this day and age, all blessing came from the fruit of their loins, right? So this is the blessing idea. Most likely, what happened here is Jacob was struck hard enough in the groin to push the hip socket out. And that's why he walks with a limp from this point on loses his name Jacob as deceiver and becomes Israel, man who strives with God. And this is this is the family that Joseph is into. This is the family. When we get to verse two and it says the, the lineage, the, the people, the, the people of Jacob, the descendants of Jacob, this is where we are. This is the family dynamic that Joseph's walking into. A family re- ripped apart with the idea of different moms, one being loved and one being hated. Literally, Leah wants so bad for the attention of her husband that when Rachel enjoys the mandrakes, a fruit from Reuben, and says, can I have some? She says, well, only if I can have Jacob tonight. And then she comes out and says, you have to come to me, into me because my, my son's fruit has, has given me a win for you. Like, it's, it's a, just a hot mess of a family, guys. It's just really dysfunctional. And so that gets us into verse two. So who is, who is Joseph? His name, we see this when he is born. It means, may he add, and sounds like the Hebrew for taken away, because Rachel says, God has taken away my reproach. He has opened my womb in my old years and late in life. And so Joseph shows up as this golden child to the loved wife. And every one of Joseph's older siblings now realize that Joseph's going to be the favorite. And so we know that Joseph is, before this point, they were in transition geographically. They were all over. I, I, wanna, I wanted to, real quickly, with Joseph, I think so many of us, if we look at the life of Joseph and where we're used to reading back, it's easy to go, man, this guy was amazing. Like, if you think, if you see some of the things, like the way he flees temptation, that's a whole sermon itself that we'll get to. The way he, he seemingly operates in horrible circumstances, like, man, this guy gets it. But I, I want us to not move past the fact that he's, he's 17 here where this picks up and he really operates like a punk 17-year-old. And I think it's important for us to understand that like, like, Joseph, although he is seemingly later in life through God's sanctification, walking out a really spiritually healthy thing, we can't assume that in here. In fact, and the reason why I get that is because of the way that verse two and three reads, let me read it for you real quick. He says, uh, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, this is why we think that Joseph is uh, a bit, not maybe just an ignorant teenager, but more, a little bit more conniving, is because this word bad report, it's actually, it's the word we get tail from on the report. So what he's saying, and, and the word bad is evil. So he's giving an evil tale. So what is he doing? He's coming back from shepherding with his brothers, coming back to give a report to dad because dad asked for the report, which again means he's not having to do the work of shepherding. So let's just think that one through, right? As the golden child makes his way back and then he's telling a bad tale. He's deceiving his deceiver of a father about what his brothers are doing. Now, we don't know if his brothers were doing evil things. They may very well have been doing evil things, but but what 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 kind of camaraderie does it build when you're doing something wrong and the little brother goes and tells on you. Like, that doesn't bring a lot of camaraderie, right? Like, it doesn't do it. But we know that, that Joseph is, at least by the word, seemingly embellishing it some, okay? So he gives a bad report. So then he goes on. It goes on and says in verse 3, now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. Now, I want to I talk about this, but I want to I pause for a second here. Because we see in, in Scripture, we see that that Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. Rebecca loved Jacob more than Esau. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And we've seen how that's played out, right? Like, it's not gone well for any of them. And here we see Jacob loving Joseph more than others. And I want to just pause for a second, just come out of this, because I think this is one of those life applications is really important for us parents here. If you, are, if you are treating or loving or caring for one kid more than another, like, it's going to cause trauma and, and wreak some havoc most likely in there. And I know most of us, like, I'm, I'm an imperfect dad in many ways, um, and most of us would say, no, we really do love all of our kids individually. Saying that and then showing it in actions can be drastically different. I can tell all of my kids I love them the same, but if I only show love to one, it's going to speak volumes to the others. So I, I want to just encourage you, maybe if you're like, um, like as a dad, you're like, "Why well, I, I just, I connect better with my son than my girls. Like, don't do that. Don't do that. If you're like, well, you know, some of you with young parents that are coming, in, it's like, oh, I don't really get it. It's a blob right now. I used to say this all the time. They're blob. I'll, I'll enjoy them when they're two or three. You're missing valuable time of connecting with your kids. Don't Do that. Favoritism is never going to work out well in your house. So don't pit your kids against each other. And adult kids, hear me on this, please. Don't pit your parents against each other. Don't pit yourself against your brothers or sisters. If you're like, well, you love my my in-law more than their in-law. Don't do that stuff. It doesn't, no one wins in it. I'm telling you right now, you don't win the affection. Leah had three children. Each child's name was based on a name of hope that her husband would love her. And it didn't work. Favoritism never works out. And so here we see Jacob. He loves his kids. He loves Joseph more than others. And it's one thing for them to see it like, wow, you got a little bit more there. You got a little bit more there. No, no. Jacob goes ahead and seals the deal with this robe of many colors. Now, there's a lot of theory about this robe. Like it's like technicolor is the way it's usually written in like the old young kids things, like this bright colored like neon stuff. Most likely it's not that. There's two things that we get that are, that are common. One, we see that the same Language is used for a princess in other parts of scripture in Samuel. So we see that it's, it's most likely an, an ornate thing, something that would show and say royalty. Something that someone would wear and they walk in, it's like a statement piece, you know, like, like whatever people wear today. I don't, I'm not hip enough to know what a statement piece is, right? So like, like they walk into the room and everyone knows this person is a person of importance. That's what it was. But the other thing that this could be translated, and I think this makes sense, is it would have been a long-sleeved robe and a long all the way down to the feet. Now, the reason why that's important is you don't work in those ropes. So, so what does Jacob do? He gives his son a visual image of the fact that he loves him more than anyone else in his family. And then at the very same time, gives him something that he's incapable of working in. So now Joseph gets to be a lazy 17-year-old teenager who has it all figured out at home, doesn't have to work, and his brothers are going to have to do it. So again, Joseph here is, is uh, he's either really, really ignorant—we'll get there in a second in the dreams— Or more likely, he's just kind of a punk teenager that has it all figured out. Like, like, you know, most teenagers, no offense. Like, we all think we have it all figured out. I still think I have it figured out. I didn't get out of teenage years, apparently. But he, he he has this ability now to walk into any room. He walks into game night, and everyone knows there's a chosen child. Any setting, when, when it's like something needs to be done, do you think they're going to say, hey, Joseph, go take care of that? No, he's going to call on one of the other 11 brothers. You guys go do that. And everything that someone else does would be like, you can't, why can't you live up to Joseph? Why can't you be like, he's so easy? And of course Joseph's easy because he gets everything he wants. He knows. He said, as a kid, could you imagine being that confident that, that there's so much love that you could do no wrong? Man, only if fathers would show their kids that more. here we see that it just causes all sorts of struggle in the family. So here's Joseph wearing his multicolored or his super long or his ornate robe around, walking in every morning, he puts it on like, look at me, I'm the favorite, right? And then he's embellishing reports. And so when the kid, when the brothers come back and, and Jacob says, you did blah, 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 blah. And they're, no, we didn't do that. He's going to trust Joseph because Joseph's the chosen child. And so this is just breeding. Hey, can you see how this is like setting up for a really good like antagonist movie story, right here, right like this is just kind of, this is just kind of laying the groundwork. This is the family that Joseph comes into. He's a spoiled brat. His dad's name is a deceiver. And in all honesty, what's crazy is if you look at Jacob's life as a deceiver, he keeps coming in contact with and dealing with people deceiving him. Uncle Laban, now Joseph, Joseph's brothers, in a, in a little bit later in this story, everyone keeps lying to him, and he just keeps believing it. Like. It, I think he maybe have caught a clue, but he doesn't. Verse three then goes on. So you see this, he, he, he's made in this world. Then he goes on to verse four. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him, could not speak civilly to him. Now listen, there's no conjecture needed. He's hated by his brothers, okay? Like, let me just be really clear. This means literally that they, didn't, they couldn't even have like small talk with him civilly. Imagine a home with that much tension, and sadly, some of you know a home with that much tension, where where you, you can't even see a good thing from someone as a good thing because you just hate them so much. This is what Jacob is fathering into his children, wives that spend their whole life competing for his attention, kids now who spend their whole life competing for their attention, defending their own mom's, and, and they hated him for this. No, it's this setting that Joseph, the 17-year-old boy, has these dreams. Now, the dreams are really interesting because in Genesis, we see that each dreams come in a pair. You have the pair here. You have the pair that happened with the cupbearer and the, and the um, baker. And then you have the pair with Pharaoh. And so usually a pair would mean like the validity that this is truly going to happen. And people this day saw dreams as a revelation from God. But what we see in these dreams is we don't see Joseph giving the credit to God for the def- definition of them, and we don't see God actually using or speaking into these. We just see that this is Joseph's dream. We believe it's easy to say that this is probably most likely a some kind of posturing or declaration of what is going to happen in Joseph's life because Joseph recalls these dreams the first time his brothers are bowing down to him in Egypt, and he remembers them. So so we, we know that there's something in these dreams, but we don't know exactly what happened. So he gives them these dreams. It's this the sheaf and the sheaf standing up and the other sheaf coming around and bowing down to it. They weren't even farmers like this. They were shepherds. So this is a, it's a kind of a weird dream in the setting of the context here either way. But the brothers are not confused by it. They're like, wait, we're going to bow down. You're going to rule over us? Again, remember the setting with which Joseph is telling these brothers who don't speak civilly to him this dream. Like, Again, this is why I think Joseph can't walk out as like, oh, he's such a sweet little boy. Like, you just keep this stuff to yourself, man. Like, if this dream comes, like, I ain't saying none of this to these people. They don't like me at all. I'm going to go hold this back, bite the tongue. I'll go tell someone else, not going to worry about it. But he does it not once, but twice. And the, and the result of the first one, and they hated him even more. We see hate five times. He, they really, really hated him. And so he tells them this dream and they're like, well, wait, we're supposed to bow down to you. The 11 brothers are gonna bow down to you. That's just crazy. Well, then he has another dream. We don't know how much time passed from this, but either way, it's like, Joseph, just keep your mouth shut, please. He tells this other dream, but this time it's the moon and the stars and the sun and, and the 11 around him and all the brothers are bowing down. And he tells his dad and his dad's like, whoa, 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 whoa. hold on a second. You, m- me and your mother, which at most likely at this point is Leah, me and your mother are to bow down to you with your brothers. You're going to rule over us. And he rebukes him. Now, that's important. That word, rebuke, is not common in older writings for a person to use. It was always used predominantly from God in rebuking. He would rebuke, let um, me pull it up here, sorry. God rebukes people in the, in the way. He would rebuke the wicked nations, the wicked, and or the seas. And it was always done with a tinge, to, tinge of anger. So so when he rebukes his son, it's done in a position of authority with a little bit of anger. And so he takes his favorite child and he confronts him and says, how dare you say, I will bow down to you. But we see in 11, he remembers it because, well, dreams are revelation of the Lord, so maybe it will become to something. But in this setting, we see what happens when he says this dream to his brothers. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. In context, this word jealous is actually stronger and deeper passion than hatred. Guys, it's just, it's just saddening how ugly it got in this family. How much hatred they had for one another. How could they, they do these things? And so it, literally the way that this word is used is almost always tied in Scripture of spilling over into violent action. And so we can see it progressing, Joseph coming further forward to being hated. It doesn't, it doesn't seem out of place for them to start thinking of what they could do to Joseph to get rid of him, to not have to deal with their father every time he walks in the and their father's smile being at him, to not have to worry about the fact that, that their, their mother would be thinking is less than because these are the boys. Like all of that stuff is just building up in them. So the dysfunctional family set. Or in the middle of the family's life, in the beginning of Joseph's, Joseph's stage is set for a spoiled little brat, at best, or maybe ignorant, completely ignorant. But that seems far fetched to uh, to try and figure out how to live life together. This this family dynamic really helps me because it helps me when I when I fail as a husband, or as a dad, or as a brother. It, it helps me recognize that, like man. There is, there is grace that can work itself out in me in ways that's, that's greater than my failures or shortcomings. But when I look at as bad as it is, and I see this play out, um, I, I can't help but stop at this moment and, and remember that we're supposed to be reading this trying to f- find God's story. And recognize that his story is still going in in spite of their circumstances. Like regardless of the circumstances, you can still flourish. And and, and for us today, I think the circumstances that I kind of want to camp in on for a second is, is your own families. See, as a pastor, I get to walk with a lot of you. There's so much brokenness in the families here today. There are passive dads, angry moms, estranged family members. Spouses with infidelity are walking out on their family. Grandchildren in danger. Divisiveness. Deep animosity and hurt and hardship within the family. The family causes so much pain. And we, we see that here. We see that you, you, you gotta feel that in some way for Joseph and his brothers and Dina and, and, the, and the moms. Like it's gotta, you gotta just, if you just sit for a moment, like imagine living in that. And some of you can't because you can't see past the dysfunction of the pain within the own family unit that you have right now. And so what I wanted to do today is, is I wanted to camp here. I wanna just try and comfort us for one minute because I wanna acknowledge that although, although every family is not incredibly dysfunctional, all of us have some form of dysfunction in it. All of us have areas that we, we know in ourselves, if we're following the Lord, like, man, we want to grow in these areas. We also have areas of the people closest to us that we look at and say, man, I wish the Lord would grow them in that. But some, it's just painful. There's a term in the Bible that is incredibly powerful, and I want us to hang on to this today in spite of what may be happening in our individual families, I want, us to, I want us to hang on to this one term, and it's this term, Abba. It's, a, it's an Aramaic word that means father. It's a name for God, and, and it's, almost, it's always used Abba, father. So it's in, it, father, father in two ways. And it's, it's a word that it's, it's expressed affection and confidence and trust. Abba signifies this close, intimate relationship of a father and a child. It's, it's beautiful as, as, a, um, as well as it, it expresses like childlike trust that a young child puts in their daddy. It, honestly, in Abba, the word like devoted, tenderness, trust, and love find their combined expression in this one word, Abba. It's a beautiful word biblically. And it makes sense when we see Jesus is, is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's, he's about to go to the cross, the most painful experience of his life that he endured because of the joy set beyond it right? But he has this moment in prayer with his Father, with, with God, and you see it. It starts in Mark 14. It says this. It says, Abba, Father, Daddy, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you, what you will. And here we see the perfect Son going to the perfect Father in perfect unity. And Jesus using an endearing and affectionate term, not a, a Lord, a sovereign. No, it's a, it's a Daddy term. And it just makes sense, right? For most of us, we're like, yeah, check, Jesus can do that with God. That makes perfect sense. But what's so important for us to recognize is that when we, when we become born again, we are adopted into the family of God, redeemed from the curse of sin, and made heirs with God. Heirs of God, sorry, heirs of God with Jesus. Part of that new relationship is that God now deals with us differently. He deals with us as family, this is important. This is so important for us to hang our hats on, to understand, and to stay true to. Look at this. In Romans 8, 15, Paul now speaking. says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, cry is a very important word for us to understand. That is not weeping. That is the same word that is used when Jesus is coming in on Palm, Palm Sunday. They cry, Hosanna. It's screaming, It's declaring, it's saying, I am a child of the Most High King. That's what it means to declare Abba, Father. This is a totally life-changing statement to understand for us. It means that we are to be joint heirs with Christ because of our relationship with our Abba and Father. He no longer deals with us as enemies. Instead, we can approach him with boldness and the full assurance of faith, as Hebrews 10 says. The Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Instead of running from God when we sin like Adam and Eve, we can run to God and say, Abba, Father, save me. This changes our life. This experience removes the the deity at a distance and makes us recognize that we can walk into the throne room of God and declare, Daddy, I need you. And he will never turn his back on us. He will never be passive when an atrocious thing happens to one of his daughters. He will never not hold someone accountable for doing something incredibly wrong with their mother's handmaid. He will not be passive when your husband or wife walks out on you. He is not distant when you're experiencing the angst and the anger within your home. Guys, Abba, Father, changes everything for us. It brings us to a spot where we don't know what to do. And if you haven't experienced God at this spot, then you surrender, fall on your faces before him say, I need you. He will not turn you away. Abba, Father a scholar says it this way, he says, being an adopted child of God is the source of our hope, the security of our future and the motivation to live a life worthy of the calling you have received, Ephesians 4, 1. Being children of the King of kings and the Lord of lords calls us to a higher standard, a different way of life, and in the future, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, 1 Peter 1 through 4. We need this so badly, church. See, because I know a little bit of a lot of your stories. And it doesn't take long. You don't have to turn very many pages to see where brokenness in the family unit just falls apart. It doesn't take long to see heartache upon heartache. And, I, and honestly, at times, I, as elders, we, we weep as we pray for the brokenness that is here. I know that it's just a fraction, a small part of what's really going on. God does not leave us alone in dysfunctional families. He brings us into a more dysfunctional family, the family of God. And says, hey, hey, church, no, no, no. Now when when you have that dad that's skipping beat, look, there's a bunch of men here that can step in and walk with your children if you'll let them. When you experience loss or hurt or pain, you can legitimately be a burden to someone because that's what Paul says, to bear one another's burdens. He doesn't say bear one another's burdens so that the burdens go away. He says bear one those burdens, constant, imperative, continual, always happening. What does that mean? That means, church, we're supposed to be a burden. So stop saying, I don't want to be a burden. Say, hey, I want to be a burden. Will you let me burden you? Will you let me walk with you? As a church, we have the opportunity to be albeit a dysfunctional family, <laughs> this side of the resurrection. But, but hear me on this, guys. Post-resurrection, there will be no brokenness, no favoritism, no passivity, no, no rape, no heartache, no divisiveness, no strife. All of us brought together with one Abba, Father, one Daddy, who by His grace has saved you and I through the work of Jesus Christ and brought us together. So look around church, we're we're the dysfunctional family. And this side of the resurrection, we're gonna keep being dysfunctional and hopefully in God's grace, we can rest and repent in that and move forward. But man, post-resurrection guys, we're gonna be in the presence of of our dad with each other and there will be nothing dividing us or or causing us to, to hate one another. There'll be no hurt. No death, no sickness, no more pain. This is what it means to be a part of the family. One last thing I wanted to, to focus on real quickly is, um, spoiler alert, if you haven't read the Joseph story, just so you know, Joseph and all his brothers and dad, they end up together reconciled, okay? So there you go, that's free. We'll get there in like 10 years probably. <laughs> they get together and, and, and you gotta stop thinking about this dysfunction that I just showed you. Like, to go from a point of not even being able to say a single word peacefully to someone to being reconciled is amazing. Now, granted, it took 20 years, just so you guys know, but it's amazing. But the reason why I share that is you see the same in Esau and Jacob. I mean, at least forgiveness happened. I don't know if they're reconciled. Jacob kind of seemed a little squirrely in it. But, but you see these absolutely horrifically terrible things. Like, I don't think any of us is ever going to sell one of our siblings into slavery. If you got that idea, it's a bad idea. Don't do it, okay? But this happens. And it, it's, it, it's unbelievable that, that even after Jacob dies, Israel dies, after he dies, the brothers have been living in the land of Egypt with Joseph and, and thriving thanks to him. But after he dies, you know what the brothers instantly do? Is he going to take it out on us now? They they didn't believe the grace that was shown them because of the animosity with which they lived with them. Like, like, it was that hard. But yet, somehow, God reconciled. That's where you get the the most brilliant thing ever. Joseph says, well, you had meant for evil. God had meant for good. And and what I want to encourage you guys is, is that with your own family dynamics, don't give up. Don't stop believing. Don't believe the lie that there's just, there's no way they can ever, ever repent or turn. It's just never going to happen because look, this is a whole lot of dysfunction and it comes together because of God. Your lack of belief in whether or not something can happen has nothing to do with you or the person and the fact that you don't believe that God can do it. It's a faith issue. We're not putting our trust in this individual to return that's walked out on their family or in ourselves that will receive them well. We're putting our trust in the Lord to work in both of our hearts. So if you have an estranged child, don't stop praying. If you've, if you've experienced deep dysfunction, ugly, atrocious, horrible things, I'm not saying just, oh, just forget it and move on. No, no, no. Don't stop praying that God can turn that, that which was meant for evil, into good. Don't believe a lie that that he can't work in your setting, that he can't redeem that which is broken in your life. Don't lose hope. We do not grieve as the host with no hope. We serve an all-powerful God who can do absolutely anything in his will. And, and, And hear me on this. If it is his will for whatever dysfunction in your family to be reconciled this side of the resurrection, he will have his way. If it's not his will, then we can hope in the resurrection where he will have his way anyways. We can hope in in the the wholeness that will come for this vapor of a life where you may have lost what it meant to have a dad or mother or brother or sister. You will have an eternity with the father in perfect harmony with a family of God that is perfect. Beautiful. So, so my encouragement would be: don't lose hope. The band's going to come up, and we're going to sing. Um, I want to, I want to challenge, plead, beg, ask uh, that you that you wouldn't that you wouldn't just go through the motions when you're singing. Like even, even as we as we sang on the front end, we we talk about him. You know, our own ability. to to only bring brokenness and him to to make something beautiful out of it. I want to remind you guys, you're you're singing to to daddy. You're singing to Abba, father, not just some deity at a distance. You're singing to a God who, who left the throne room, came down personally, and grabbed you and drew you to him. Someone beautifully, I don't know who said it originally, but I've heard it a million times. It says, no one would ever dare wake the king in the middle of the night for a glass of water except for his child. And you guys, there is nothing you can ask of God that is too small for him or too great. He's not going to roll his eyes like I do sometimes with my own children. He's not going to give the flippant answer like I do sometimes when I'm exhausted. He's always going to be stopping. He's going to get down. He's going to be intent and say, what is it, child? I'm your daddy. Come to me. You will never be forsaken. I will never leave you. There is nothing you can do that can make me love you any less or any more. And how I love you because of what Jesus Christ has done. Guys, when we sing, we sing to that, Dad. We don't just utter words because it like sounds nice, and oh cool. We, we sing to a, a father that is Daddy, a father that, in our deepest, darkest hour, like Jesus can cry out and say, "Lord, please, there's another way." And in our most uh, exciting and incredible moments where we want to show like a kid that pulls their first tooth out, like, "Dad, look what I did, <laughs> Look what happened." This is the God that we serve. This is the God whom we sing to. So so my encouragement would be, don't just go through the motions with daddy. Someone who went to all extremes to redeem his people, to bring us in as a family. Someone who's held nothing back from us except for the punishment we were due. And if you can't sing, that's okay, don't. Don't go through the motions. God, I need you. I need Daddy. I need you to meet me here right now. But but hear me on this: if you're not going to sing because you don't believe you are worthy, that is a lie from the enemy, and I will rebuke him in the name of Jesus. Do not believe that lie because there is nothing in us that is evil if we have Jesus. We are His and His alone. Our own sinfulness is forgiven, and on the cross, and it's complete and finished. So don't hold back because you're you're feeling. Now, if you need to repent, then by all means do so. If you want to go to the prayer room, there'll be safe people back there to pray with, to repent with, to, to be freed with. But as we sing, church, as we sing, let's, let's sing as the family that desperately needs each other. where we need dads and moms and brothers and sisters to step in and fill in the gap. We're all so broken and, and struggling. Let's, let's sing as, as, as children that have been invited into the throne room of God not by anything we deserve or on our own merit, but by the faith of Jesus Christ in us. We pray, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for saving me. Thank you for, um, for giving me, gosh, God, it is even hard for me to say Daddy. I just want to say Heavenly Father and keep me in that spot, but Daddy, thank you for, thank you for pursuing me. Thank you for pursuing others. Thank you for, um, Thank you for not turning your back on us. Father, I know as there is so many dysfunctional families, Dad, as I know, I'm one of those dysfunctional families. Lord, I pray I pray that you would, um, by your grace and your might, uh, redeem that which needs to be redeemed, reconcile that which needs to be reconciled. And God, would you please help us as a church to display family in such a way that this world would see it and, and long to belong in that way. Daddy, we, we worship you, uh, which seems like so little to give. But as a as an imperfect dad, I, I I love I love when my kids take joy in just being around me. And so I, I assume uh, the same is true of you as a perfect father. That you delight in us delighting in you. And so God, I pray as we worship, I pray that we do that with delight. I pray that we would do it. With our whole hearts. And I pray wherever needs to be broken apart, whatever needs to be torn down inside of us, God, I pray that you do so um, because you're the only one that can put it back together the way it's supposed to be. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org or on the Church Center app. We encourage you not to neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.